Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I am Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I am here with Executive Editor John Fiorillo in Seattle. Diving right in, we just got back uh, last weekend from the Seafood Investor Forum, uh, which we put on with our partners Pareto uh, in New York City. Um, and it was a great event, great turnout, and um, a lot of new faces, which I thought was very interesting. Um, when we've hosted these events, both in New York and London, it's always been um, kind of remarkable to see the kinds of investors that are coming out of the, the woodwork. Um, I know that you had mentioned a couple of them you ran into, John, but, um, you know, pension fund, teachers' pension funds, uh there's one fund that manages the Canadian Army's uh, pensions. Um, just people from all over the place that are hearing about the aquaculture sector in particular. But um, just my my vast general impression was uh, the crowd was quite a bit different than we've had in past years. Um, with yeah, just reflecting the the level of interest that's that's out there in the community. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, aquaculture is definitely on the radar screens for a lot of the investors that that, uh, I spoke with there. And a number of them, it was kind of interesting. A number of times I heard them say, well, yeah, you know, wild fisheries are done. There's no more reason to invest in them so we're uh we're looking at aquaculture and and related industries and i thought eh, that may be a little premature to come to that conclusion but that's kind of the premise they're working off of that um you know aquaculture is as people have been saying for a long time the savior here and wild fisheries are um not quite as attractive uh from an investment point of view so there's truth to it but just kind of here to hear it laid out so simply i i thought that was kind of funny yeah and you had said too that there were um you said there were people that actually that you ran into that were there um just to uh just to hear some of the land-based discussions um because we had uh atlantic sapphire was there we had both uh jose prado and uh carl oystein oyahog who is the uh, cfo of atlantic sapphire um, and, uh, we also had Ohad Maimon from, uh, Kingfish Zealand was there as well. So there was, it was definitely a topic that, uh, we know is hot. We know there's a lot of interest in it, but, um, that, that it does seem like, uh, there is a level of outside investor interest in particular in RAS systems and land base that, um, is a, a bit more, uh, intense than it is in, in other sectors. And I think, the panel, the land-based salmon uh, panel that we had, which uh, had uh, Carlo Stone on it from Atlantic Sapphire, Eric Haim of uh, Nordic Aqua Farms, uh, Sylvia Wolf of uh, of Aqua Bounty, um, Shetel Haga of Broodstock Capital Partners, um, which has an investment in Billund Aquaculture, uh, and Carl Emil Johannesson from Pareto. Um, that was a very interesting discussion, I thought, and um, we opened it by highlighting the market cap of Atlantic Sapphire, which is, last time I checked, uh, over one billion U.S. dollars uh, for a company that, um, you know, doesn't even have production from its uh, its primary site. Um, so it's a very interesting time. So I, I'm going to put it to you. Uh, are we, did you get the sense that there is a potential land-based salmon farming bubble if so many people that were interested in it um, 
and so many investors came just to 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 learn about it um and so many of these projects are so early stage likely to never get off the ground yeah i it, it almost feels like that um just because you know it, it feels like the internet days of the late 90s early 2000s where if you had anything that resembled some sort of internet startup you could get money right and it's maybe not quite that extreme but it has a has a similar feel to it now what i heard over and over again was everybody's kind of just holding their breath right now because uh there's a lot of pressure mostly on uh, Atlantic Sapphire to succeed just because they're going so big right out of the gate. If they were to fail, and God knows I'm not wishing that at all, but if they were, that might turn the tables quite a bit. Um, now, if they were to succeed, of course, that would probably just fuel more investment. But you could tell there was a lot of you know, just kind of anxiety over uh, Sapphire and whether it will kind of come to fruition. You know, so we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the people that I thought were really realistic about it was um, Eric Ham, who's a, um, a CEO of Nordic Aqua Farms, uh, who's developing their project in Maine and just, uh, I believe they just placed Smolt in their Norwegian uh, operation Frederikstad Seafood. So uh, he had a, I don't want to say cynical view, but he had a, maybe we could say skeptics view about land-based salmon farming that um, I think should be heated. So Haim was cautioning uh, that it's very easy to get out over your skis uh, on, uh, land-based salmon farming, uh, and what it takes to get them off the ground, including social license, which he's, uh, in the middle of being challenged with, 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 uh, his operations in Maine, uh, paperwork. Uh, he had a, a great, he showed me on his phone, this great image of, um, all the permitting documentation that, uh, Nordic Aqua Farms had to submit and it filled an entire U-Haul. It was a great photo. So you need to get a hold of that and post it online. It was, it was a, you know, it was eye-opening. This isn't easy. Um, and I think a lot of the selling points um, in terms of lack of disease and in terms of costs, etc., um, have to be taken with caution until we see a real proof of concept. And we, we've, we've certainly seen fish be produced, but... I think you're right. A lot of pressure on the shoulders of Atlantic Sapphire. Um, what did you think about Sylvia Wolf uh, and uh, Aqua Bounty and and their role in the panel? Did you feel like it was um, Did you feel like it was different in terms of how Aqua Bounty fits into the discussions on salmon farming versus um, years past? Uh, I did. It felt to me like they were now part of the club, for lack of a better description. And it felt to me as well that the, their their participation was more about their land-based um, mm-hmm. approach than it was their GM, um, you know, pedigree, which of course has caused them controversy and what have you over the last two decades. But yeah, it just felt like. 
you know, they become part of the club. I don't know. And and Sylvia Wolf is, is she's so great. I mean, uh, she takes no prisoners. She believes in that company, and I'm sure all the employees do as well. But she is not bashful. She does not back down about what they're doing. She's a she's a strong proponent for uh, you know food technology that is uh, uh, cutting edge in in one sense. So. Um, she's a force to be reckoned with, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It was very interesting. And Carl Emil Johannesson of Pareto had really interesting thoughts on, uh, on land-based salmon farming and, um, it could apply to Aquabounty as well. And that is that land-based salmon farming and, uh, Atlantic Sapphire in particular, perhaps give, it gives investors an opportunity to speculate in the seafood sphere. And so many of the stock-listed companies in Oslo are very well-heeled companies, uh, making a lot of money, typically. And, um, you know, around the globe, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of listed seafood companies, but very few where you could make a informed speculative play like you can in Atlantic Sapphire. So I think that was a really good point that, Regardless of how, um, regardless of, of how out on the edge some of these projects can be, it does give investors a different way to approach the sector. And anything that is attracting investors to the sector is probably good for the industry, because, as, as you well know, we're we're in a, a, a state in the seafood industry where consolidation is happening at a rapid pace. But it needs to happen much, much, much faster. The industry is still well behind some of the other proteins. So um, this investor interest is good for the industry. It's interesting because we don't know the wherewithal of these investors yet. We don't know how much of a long haul they're in for. And Robert Orr from Cuna Del Mar had a really interesting point, And it meant... <clears throat> It was meant more for the seafood producers, and he's, you know, he talked about patient money, patient investors, because this takes a lot of time. This is very new technology, land-based RAS. You know, it's it it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen without you know uh, setbacks. And uh, Pantera, for example, stepped out of their aquaponics thing earlier this month, and Basically, they said it just wasn't viable. They they couldn't see it getting to where they thought it was going to go. So, you know, I, I like the speculation aspect for sure, and I like that there's interest in this sector and mo real money uh, coming in. But it better be patient money, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, sticking on uh, salmon farming, but moving to uh, to conventional net pen salmon farming. And highlighting the risk of aquaculture because it's out there and sometimes the risks are completely forgotten. I think there's been a lot of attention paid on sea lice, on disease. Uh, algal blooms are a part of industry, uh, industry life in salmon farming. But that said, um, I think everyone has been surprised by the impact of the uh, algal bloom that, that began in mid-May in Troms and Norland, that's in the northern part of Norway. The algae, I'm going to attempt to say its name, Chrysochromulina ledbiateri, so say that fast ten times, 
And scientists, you can email and tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. Uh, But this has been devastating. This has changed the face of the global salmon supply and uh, will have some severe impacts on uh, other species as well. So, um, you know, it it began initially with uh, very small numbers reported and kind of dismissed a bit. Then suddenly, there uh, there was ten thousand metric tons by about the twenty first. There was estimates that one percent of Norway's salmon biomass could be affected. Last week, Kentali put the potential harvest drop at twenty thousand metric tons. And then, depending on who you ask, the losses now are over a hundred million dollars. At least as of a week ago, that's where they were tallied. There's a lot going on in the Norwegian Fisheries Directorate and. Um, and companies themselves are trying to stay on top of it, but it's moving very, very quickly. And then they, they, I think it was yesterday or the day before, there was reports that, okay, it's becoming less toxic. Well, yesterday it spread to new areas in Norland and, and mortalities got even, uh, got even uh, higher on, this, on the, the full tally. So um, the interesting thing is there are some smiling faces about it. Um, just for those that don't know, in the northern part of the country, there are not, there is not as much exposure to the stock-listed companies. That's not in that northern area. Those tends to tend to be smaller companies, mid-sized and smaller salmon farming companies. So the stock-listed companies themselves um, were not uh, really affected. I'm talking Movie and Leroy and all the the larger ones. Um, but um, why were they smiling? Well. Um, this takes supply off the market, and there okay. is uh, always room for those prices to go up. And I'm not saying that that salmon farming companies are celebrating it, but I think the the uh, fact of getting um, some supply uh, out is not a too terribly bad thing for everybody. So they would never say that publicly, but I I believe that they're. There's certainly, um, in some quiet conversations, have been people um, telling us that. So we haven't seen a major price impact yet, and part of that is because of all the emergency slaughtering that was happening, emergency harvesting that was happening. Um, so when the uh, when the algae started spreading, um, farmers very quickly had to get a lot of fish out of the water, do what they could to, to protect their fish and, and get their fish onto the market before they were impacted. So that initially led to a downward adjustment in prices. So that's starting to change uh, going into next week, according to our sources. And then uh, as we head into June and July, market watchers are saying that the market's in for a uh, in for a shock. Um, and you know, before I think there's always been this um, this pushback from buyers that salmon farmers can't get their prices too too high, or people will turn away from it. And boy, we just have not seen that. Um, consumers, as of now, are comfortable with paying the salmon prices that they are paying. Um, and and so I, I don't know that them pushing back up again is going to have a major impact in the way that it would a few years ago. So um, prices are around uh, NOC 56 for 4 to 5 kilo fish and uh, larger fish is, is uh, prices are pretty firm too. So We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks, but this is this is going to be big, and um, certainly it's a good reminder 
um, that algal blooms could very well be uh, something that we see more of that the industry needs to take more seriously. Yeah, that's kind of my takeaway from it all. I think I totally agree on the, the pricing uh, dynamics, but, um, you know, if this becomes a regular event, um, it fundamentally changes uh, the idea that you you can farm in the sea, um, at least in some areas maybe. But, I mean, I think getting ahead of myself on that one. But, you know, climate change... For all those who <laughs> believe it in, and I hope you do, um, climate change is gonna is already and is going to have bigger and bigger impact on seafood business, and um, this this could be an example of that. Yeah, and I, I, there's no doubt, and uh, we're working on a story on this right now. There's no doubt it's going to impact BC again this summer. And there's no doubt that it's impacting Australia. So th this is, uh, yeah, like you said, John, it's not it's not going to go away. It's just going to keep uh, keep on coming. Um, shifting gears. Hey, John, what did you think about Cook being in talks to acquire uh, part or all of Ocean Beauty? Did you see this well, story? Well, well, well. Yeah, no, I I'm <laughs> I don't know what to think about it entirely, but you know. Cook. It's no, but it's no secret that they've been buying and buying and buying, and seem to have limitless reserves of capital and uh, ambition. So, uh, and I know Ocean Beauty. You know, they're they're kind of split in half as far as ownership, and uh, half of that ownership has been wanting to kind of get out of OB for a while. So, um, but. You know, they're, they're in the broader context, we've seen, okay, so Cook bought Icicle, say they buy OB, Orca Bay and Odyssey tied up uh, last year, the year before, whenever it was, E&E and Canon and, and others. So this Alaska um, processing sector and some of the harvesting sector is quietly um, consolidating. And who knows what's going to happen with American? You know, they... Uh, they're looking for investors or new owners or something. And, you know, uh, Pacific Seafood's name has been dropped, as many others have. So, um, yeah, there's a quiet kind of roll-up going on there that hasn't really been um, explored too deeply, I don't think. Yeah, it's interesting. It's been it, – it's a complicated sector, especially in salmon – if you'll remember, if you get into the Wayback Machine, Trident was going to acquire Ocean Beauty. I remember. I, should, I could pull it up in our archives here. Uh, maybe I'll do it when you start talking next. But that was, I don't know, 15 years ago maybe? I can't remember. Um, but it's been a while. And um, that fell through for whatever reason. But beyond that, you haven't seen... You've seen some of the larger players take smaller and mid-sized players, but any major consolidation um, really hasn't happened in the way that it probably should have. It's still operating largely the way it did uh, in the early 1900s. You've still got a lot of uh, canning companies uh, competing for individual fishermen. Um, of course, now they've shifted much more to uh, products that the industry wants, fillet, or the consumer wants, fillets, um, domestic markets getting a lot more. So there's a lot more promise for what can happen with these great Alaska resources. 
So it makes sense that investors are looking at it more and trying to figure out what the plays might be. Now, Cook, I think Cook was shocked uh, by the complexity of Icicle. And the wild fish game is a lot different than the farm fish game. And um, just some of the executives I've talked to there have sort of laughed about the process that uh, that that wild salmon, um, uh, the, the, the dynamics of the wild salmon industry, which are very, very different. Um, you are operating in an intense period of time doing a lot of planning within a matter of weeks the majority of your of your fish is is coming in so it's it's a different ball game for cook and i was a little surprised um given the amount of acquisitions that cook has undertaken recently and just how diverse uh those those uh acquisitions have been because i mean they are on a, a pretty incredible tear just in the, since the beginning of the year um, you know they acquired uh, Seajoy, and uh, they acquired a little small little company called All Seas Wholesale in San Francisco, and you know it's just gone on and on. If you look at the list of uh, companies they've acquired, and I the as I understand it, and from what I know of the Cook family and Glenn Cook in particular, he's somebody that he knows everything that's going on in that company. And that's uh, for for the size that the company has reached now. That is probably going to pose a unique challenge as time goes on. Now I think he's got great management, and I think the companies that Cook has acquired, as I understand, they are very good on their due diligence. They know what they're acquiring, but it's it's going to be interesting to see if they are going to be um, a leader in consolidating Alaska. Um, whether or not they are going to be able to develop or maintain the expertise needed to do that. And I'm most interested in whether or not this puts pressure on companies like Trident uh, or some of the Japanese-owned companies to, make a, to, to get a little bit more creative in their thinking about how to consolidate the sector. Um, so, so it'll be very interesting, but you can't, it's, it's an overused word, but you can't say that Cook is not a disruptor because they certainly, certainly have been. Yeah. And just real quick, that failed ocean beauty trident deal was in 2008. So you were close 10 years, 11 years. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe, maybe the icicle experience now that they've, taken it in and figured it out a little bit maybe that inspired them to do more in alaska rather than what a lot of people thought would scare them away just because of the complexities you you uh talked about a minute ago but i don't know i mean they're they're going to get a lot of processing assets or at least you know buy into a, a company with a lot of processing assets and some brands um some smoked, you know, there, there's a lot about ocean beauty that's attractive and, um, that would seem to fit pretty well with, with, uh, what cook is already doing. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we're trying to figure out if it's when and if it's going to happen. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, we know there's talk. So, uh, we did get a comment yeah. from cook that it's rumors and speculation, but 
No, that's not true. There's talks. There are talks. <laughs> we know that. Yeah, if we report it, it's it's gonna be accurate, folks. So we're gonna do our very very best to make sure it is. Um, well, it, it it should be interesting, like you say, John, um, to see where uh, where they're gonna where they're gonna go. I I wrote a column about this I think a couple months ago, and they made one of their more recent acquisitions that it's getting to be one of the it's it's getting to be a a true diversified seafood protein giant and that's very impressive there is no other company like cook and uh and and it should i think prompt other companies to think a lot more creatively like i said uh some of these larger companies and and, uh, norwegian salmon farming companies movie for example these companies have a lot of capital um how are they going to to deploy it? Um, because I think they need to be thinking about that. And there's there's limited, solid, good resources out there. There's a race on for resources around the globe, not just in seafood. So it's extremely smart to position yourself uh, to be on top of those resources. But um, just going out and making acquisitions does does not. Uh, that's not all it's going to take. It's going to take integration, and that is a huge, huge job. Cook's very good at it, but at the same time, wow, they have brought on a lot of new companies in the past several months, and um, integrating can be very, very distracting. Um, and then there's the the tired cliche of, of um, what is it, two out of three mergers, two out of three acquisitions fail to get any synergies or something like that. Cook seems to be avoiding that pitfall, but hey, let's see. Fun to watch anyway. So, okay, well, I think that's enough for this week. Uh, John and myself and other members of the editorial team will be back next week to talk about all the news that's happened. There was a a late breaker from uh, Lola Navarro just right before we hopped on the podcast about uh, Patagonia's new film on the Chilean salmon industry. So we'll have time to dissect that. Uh, early next week and, and talk a bit more about that and um, how that's going to impact things. Uh, remember that you can find us on intrafish.com. That's the best way to see the absolute best in seafood news. And you can find our newsletters there and sign up and get our, our headlines right in your inbox. And you can find us on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Thanks, John. And we'll speak to you all next week. 